Good morning. We are we're halfway through Philippians. It only took, what are we, like four or five months into, into being here, so here we go. Starting in chapter 3, well, technically we ended in chapter 3 last week in verse 1. Hey, there we go. Today we'll be in Philippians 3, 2 through 9, titled A Righteousness Based on Faith. The Apostle Paul writes, watch out for dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, and boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But Everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Heavenly Father, God, there is a righteousness that you have provided that we were unable to obtain on our own, even as we try to do what you want, or tried to do what you want, tried to be faithful to your commands, Lord, we still fell short. God, you you require perfect obedience from us. And so we realize that we're not able to be perfectly obedient, yet in grace, you provided your son, Jesus Christ, the sinless lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, Lord. God, we pray that that would be our confidence in his righteousness that you give us, Lord, and declare us righteous in your sight, not by what we have done, but what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and was raised to life. Therefore, he ascended to the throne, and he is Lord of lords. Amen. Well, this is a clear and a a very simple gospelized passage. Paul explains to the Philippians that all sinners, including religious studs like Paul himself, are justified by faith alone. And by our justification, or justification, not not only does that mean God does not count our sins against us, but that God even declares us as righteous. Therefore, we must not put any confidence, Paul says, in who we are, nor determine 
Did I, did I go, did I go out? Okay, that was an important part. Therefore, Paul says, the word of God says, do not put confidence in who you are, nor determine your standing with God by what you do or what you've done. Instead, put your eternal hope and confidence in the work of Jesus Christ alone, who fulfilled the law. Simple enough. We know the message. We believe the message. So did the Philippians. Yet, Paul still warned them, hey, there are some who seek to distort this message. So he warns them. Don't, don't, don't be deceived by anyone who teaches something other than justification by faith, especially the Judaizers. What's a Judaizer? Moises Silva, in his Philippian commentary, I think gives a good uh, definition. He says the Judaizers were false teachers claiming to be Jewish Christians who insisted that Gentile Christians must submit to the Mosaic law, especially in regard to circumcision. Otherwise, if they didn't, it didn't matter if they had faith in Christ, if they still didn't adhere, observe the Mosaic law, on top of that, then they didn't belong to God. The Galatians themselves were firsthand eyewitnesses to this exact distortion of the gospel. Because unlike to Philippi, or Paul's letter to Philippi, which is just a warning to watch out for false teachers. His letter to Galatia, the false teachers were already present. They had already infiltrated the church. And they were compelling enough, as we read this morning in our background reading, to compel and, and to persuade some of the Christians, right? Even Barnabas, Galatians 2. That in order to be justified, they were required to observe the Mosaic law on top of their faith in Christ. If you've ever read Galatians, you'll remember Paul's strong language to them, to the church in Galatia. He says, you fools, who has bewitched you? You've been deceived. That is not the gospel that I taught you. There's one gospel, and and the message, the gospel declares that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And if anyone tells you a different gospel, Paul then says, let them be cut off from Christ and even condemned to God's wrath. Clearly, it's important that we get the gospel correct. So point one, watch out for those who put confidence in their flesh. Watch out for dogs, watch out for evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. That first term, dogs, or dog, was a common word used in ancient times to describe non-Jews. They would have been called the Gentiles, pagans, because like dogs, they were unclean, and by unclean, not like dirty, like a scroungy dog, but they were unclean according to the law of Moses. 
dogs was a reference to state that. It was, it was a common phrase, and Jeevan, Jesus even uses it uh, in his expression with the pagan woman, the Canaanite woman, in the Gospel of Matthew. Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. His disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out to us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Therefore, it's not right to give bread to the dogs. And in return, she says, yes. But even the dogs eat the children's crumbs under the table. Now, what's interesting about Paul's usage here in Philippians 3 of that term dog is he reverses the meaning. In other words, it went from describing non-Jews who didn't observe the law of Moses as being unclean to now it's the, the term is being used to describe those who want to be justified by the law of Moses as unclean. Why? Be, because now the Gentile sinners who were unclean have now been made clean because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, in the blood of Jesus Christ. They are clean because Christ has made them clean. like, I have a white car, and that is not what you want in a six-month winter time in Leavenworth, Kashmir, the winter we have had. And it needs bathed something fierce right now. Sometimes I just let the rain and the snow, just the precipitation kind of wash it. But it needs to go through a wash. It's filthy. It's almost embarrassing how unclean it is. If you imagine that's us. We're unclean. Take it through the car wash, right? Through the blood of Christ. And come out completely clean on the other side. Not one spot, not one stain left over. That's what the blood of Christ does, even to the Gentile unbelievers who wanted nothing to do with the law of Moses, who didn't care about God. Jesus Christ makes them clean, makes them holy, and they are forgiven by nothing that they have done but what Christ did for them. Well, the Judaizers may have not had a problem with that message. <laughs> Maybe it'll it probably ruffle some feathers, calling them dogs. But then he also calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now, I'm certain that would have ruffled a few feathers as well. And if you imagine or can imagine one of these opponents, one of these Judaizers, Judaizers coming up to Paul, wanting to debate with him, right, and, and, and saying, Paul, Abraham was commanded to be circumcised. So were those born or made that agreed in the Sinai covenant with Moses. And if you were born under the, the Sinai covenant, you were commanded to be circumcised. Paul, you yourself were circumcised. Why? Because the law of Moses says if you're not circumcised, you're unclean. Therefore, Paul, your followers must submit to circumcision. 
Paul's response is in verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. Romans 2, Paul writes, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Uh Uh-oh. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the law and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. For a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not the law. In other words, Paul's right. Look, if you obey God's law and never sin, huh, your circumcision counts for something, right? But if you're circumcised and you disobey by even breaking one of God's laws, well, then circumcision counts for nothing. Furthermore, Paul says, look, the true people of God are not those who who have their flesh circumcised, but who have their hearts. And that's the work only the Spirit of God is able to do. For the law of Moses was never meant or able to remove the hardness of our hearts. The law of Moses was just there to show us how hardened our hearts were truly are it's meant to point us to our need for god and his forgiveness and his grace and mercy so paul tells the philippians look we worship by the spirit not the flesh but then this next part's descriptive not prescriptive because i wouldn't recommend any of us do what paul does next he says tell you what though These Judaizers want to have a Jewishness competition so they can boast. Let's do it. Let's do it. Paul says, I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that's in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be lost because of Christ. Paul says, I was a better Jew than any of these Judaizers are claiming to be. So if we want to compare who has a better resume according to the law of Moses, here we go. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. From the tribe of Benjamin, a southern tribe, I might add, not one of those northern tribes. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. I think he was just adding it for gusto. We know the Hebrews were in Egypt, but a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Amen? Regarding the law of Moses, he says, I was a Pharisee. That's a Ph.D. in Jewishness. 
And here's, here, here's my personal favorite regarding zeal. Verse 6, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. I persecuted the church. It's like he's actually bragging about it or something. But why did Paul exemplify himself here? Was he arrogant? Was, was it because his life as a Pharisee gave him a greater standing than anybody else in the kingdom of God? No. It's, it's because he wanted them to understand that if they cannot even measure up to Paul's standards, there's no way they'll ever be able to measure up to God's. God's standards perfection, which means he requires perfect obedience. Who can live up to that? None of us. No one. At least that's what the Bible says. None are good. None are righteous. None seek God. All have turned away. Except one. Second Corinthians 5, 21, he knew no sin. It's Jesus. Hebrews 4, 15, Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have, yet he was without sin. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin. 1 John 3, 5, look, he appeared to take away our sins. Look, the reason he came, why did Jesus come to this earth? To take away our sins. But there is no sin in him. Consider the sinlessness of Christ. Just, just for a moment. They, I mean, just think what that means. Not once did Jesus ever tell a lie. Not once did Jesus disobey his parents. Where's all the kids at? There's, there's some. Not once. Can any kid in here fathom that? Not once did Jesus have an impure thought. Not once did Jesus do or say something hypocritical. Not once did Jesus make an unjust judgment. Not once did Jesus choose anything other than God's will. In the sinlessness of Christ, we must hold on to. Because it's precisely his sinlessness as a man that makes him capable of bearing our sin. For one, only a human can atone for human sins. And only a spotless lamb, only a sinless lamb, can bear the sins of a blemished flock. Loved ones, we're a blemished flock. That's why no matter how religious you are or may be or may have been, even by Paul's standards, which are pretty high, you are still a great sinner in need of a mightier Savior. I can assure you that there's many people outside these walls, they need to hear that message. That exact message, because, because the pride of humanity 
the pride of humans. We consider ourselves as worthy creatures. Isaiah, on the other hand, in 64, chapter 64, verse 6 says, all of us are unclean, and even our best righteous acts, our most righteous acts in the sight of God are filthy rags. That's it. If you're going to take notes, take that note. Isaiah 64, 6. What does God think of man's best? Not much. And yet there's even some who profess to believe in God or a God or some who would even profess to believe in Jesus. Who when asked, on what basis does God declare you righteous? They will reply, because I've been a good person. No, you haven't. Neither have I. Reminds me of a man that I, I used to serve at Texas Roadhouse while I was in seminary. He learned that I was a pastor, I, or I told him. I probably invited him to church. And he came out one Sunday, I think even a couple Sundays. After service, one Sunday, he openly confessed his sin to me. Now, he didn't call it sin, but what he said, he was in the pattern of living. It was sin. So I showed him in the Bible where God says it's sin. He refused to repent. And that conversation just went back and forth, back and forth for a long time. Eventually, I asked, well, look, man, if, if, if you're not here to repent or place your faith in Christ, right, how can I help you? Like, dude, what can I do for you? I don't, like, I, that's, that's all I got, man. I got the Bible. I got place your faith in Christ. Repent and believe. That's it. And he looked at me and he said, I want you to tell me that I'm a good person. So I looked at him and I said, but you're not. Ask my wife. She tells me I don't have good bedside manner all the time. But, I, but I, I didn't leave it there. I went on to explain. My friend, none of us are. Right? None of us are good. At least according to the Bible. Right? He rejected that. And because he rejected that he was a sinner, that he was a sinner in need of God's grace... Why did he reject he was a sinner in need of God's grace? Because he wanted to place confidence in who he was and what he had done. He wanted to place confidence in his flesh. He didn't want to consider himself to be a sinner in the sight of a holy God. Well, enough of him. Put ourselves on the hot seat. Do we, do you, base your eternal life, eternal status, eternity, hoping for the possibility that God will declare you righteous because you're a good person. I hope not. Allow me to echo Vody Bacham to explain why not. I'm going to have him say it because if I say it, it'll sound too intense, so I'm just going to let him take the intensity. Vody said, hell is going to be filled with people who went to church, read their Bibles, and prayed fervently to God. Hell is going to be filled with people who went to church, read the Bible, and prayed to God. Why? 
as necessary as they are to lead us to Christ and to teach us about Christ. None of those, not going to church, not reading our Bible, not praying to God, none of those are able to eradicate our sins. Only the blood of the blood of only the blood of Christ is capable of removing our sins. That's it. That's why we must remain united as a church in the one true gospel. That's why Paul's writing to all these churches. Remember the one true gospel, which says, "Nothing in my hands I bring; simply to the cross I cling." Our boasting shall be in Jesus Christ alone, not in our flesh. That's a unity that we should be willing to die for. That is a hill to die on. Now, just another question. Do you base your standing with God by the type of day that you had? In other words, if you chose to sin today, maybe even multiple times, or yesterday, do you get down on yourself and depressed or discouraged because you think God views you differently? Now, I'm asking you Christians, you who have been justified by faith in Christ, do you think that your standing with God changes on account of what you've done? If you do, it's anti-gospel. And you're placing confidence again in your own flesh. Let me walk that out. If someone says, wait, how is me doubting myself putting confidence in my flesh? (laughs) But those two terms are opposed to one another. Doubting, confidence, doubting, confidence. I'm not confident. I'm skeptical. That's right. You're basing your standing with God by your actions. But the gospel says your standing with God does not change on account of what you've done or what you haven't done. It's solely based on account of what Jesus Christ has done. You can't earn your salvation, but you also can't lose it. You didn't. You weren't justified by anything you did. You might make up a word here. You can't unjustify yourself by what you do either. Why? Because we're not justified by what we do. We're only declared righteous by faith in what Christ has done. So take heart. Even in your discouragement to sin. And believe what Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that He who began a good work in you is going to complete it. Final point. Die to self to gain Christ. Verses 8 and 9. Paul says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Meditate on that. Homework. Because of him, because of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law. 
just one that is through faith in Christ. Righteousness from God. It's based on faith. In verse 8, Paul begins, he's saying, look, as, as amazing as I was, as a Pharisaical Jew, I count every bit of it as loss. According to religion, I may have some amazing achievements, but when I stand before God, it will all count for nothing. Not only that, he says, but everything I was, everything I possessed was nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He said, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do you know Christ like that? Is he of more value to you than all of your possessions, all of your achievements? Is Jesus the treasure of your heart? Is all else rubbish in regard to his surpassing worth? If not, the application is simple. Cut out the rubbish to gain Christ. This John MacArthur quote popped up on, I think, my Facebook feed from something I uh, retweeted, re-Facebooked, <laughs> re-social mediaed. Stop all your head. Johnny Mac said, anybody will accept a Jesus who gives you what you want. Right? How about a Jesus who takes everything you have? We'll get there in a second. On to verse 9. You found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Paul says, be found in Christ. Don't get caught up trying to be approved by God by your own work or seeking religion to obtain a righteousness of your own. And it'd be good to close with the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who sought to have a righteousness on his own through the law. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. The man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, hey, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Anybody will accept a Jesus who gives you what you want. How about the Jesus who takes away everything you have? You know, in verse 18, Jesus mentions the commandments that involve 
loving other humans, loving your neighbor as yourself. The man says, I've done that, Jesus. Anything else? I'm good. Jesus says, yeah, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then come and follow me. Tragically, the man walks away. Here's the irony. The man who wanted to be justified by the law had just broken the first two commandments, which are place no other gods before me and don't worship idols. In this passage, Matthew 19, we see that the young man's wealth is his God and his earthly possessions are his idols. Yet, even as a sinner, Jesus would have forgave him. Jesus forgives sinners. That's what we read he came to do. He came to take away our sins. All the rich man had to do was repent from his idolatry and follow Jesus. Yet he feared losing his wealth more than he feared God. That's the saddest part of it all. The rich young man was so consumed by his own fortunes, he didn't even realize the greatest treasure he could ever obtain was standing right in front of him. Story of the young man, the rich young man, always reminds me of a movie about baseball called Moneyball. Check the rating, don't just show it in front of the kids because I'm pretty sure, you know. You won't find it on pure flicks. It's not about just, phew. The wife will tell me I walked myself in a ditch after the sermon. So. It's a true story about a baseball manager uh, from the Oakland A's. He went against the norm by picking his players uh, by an algorithm <laughs> rather than choosing his team by who looks best on paper. That's how all the other teams do it, right? He was criticized continually for that decision. However, with this team of nobodies, he took a bunch of no-name players to the playoffs, and that year the Oakland A's set historic records. It was one of the most amazing seasons in the entire history of baseball. Yet because he didn't win the World Series, he became depressed. It felt like a failure, right? He's discouraged. Now, therefore, at the end of the movie, his friend, he, he brings him into this room, film room, to, to show him a baseball highlight from the minor leagues or a minor league game. In the video, uh, one of the batters, big guy, gets a hit and becomes so focused on getting on, uh, on, getting on first or getting a single that, that he, just, he just like flops right into first base. He stands up. He's wiping himself off. I think you can start to hear laughing from the stands. And soon the umpire comes up to him and he says, hey, we're on the bases. He just did a home run. He didn't even know it. And the, the point of the video, the, 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 the point that his friend is trying to make to the manager, you just had one of the most amazing seasons ever and you only think you hit a single. When in reality, you hit a home run. That's the tragedy of the rich young ruler. He was settling to be justified by the law, which he couldn't do. He was settling for a single, when in reality, he had just been offered by Jesus to round the bases. He could have had eternal life, eternal riches, and most of all, he could have had Christ. 
had he not pursued a righteousness of his own and instead sought the righteousness from God that is based on faith alone in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, God, please make that clear. Please use those words for anyone who is trying to measure up to a standard that they cannot measure up to, but understanding that the death of Jesus Christ and his blood is free for them if they will just confess that they are a sinner in need of being saved and believe that he died for their sin and rose from the dead. God, may your word not be in vain, as you promise it never will. Amen.